if you had been here during the um, during the Sunday school hour, you would have heard an already an excellent message uh, given by uh, by Elliot Everett. And you know, one thing is, just so you know, Elliot, I'm listening to you and taking notes and and so on. Elliot is talking about uh, paradigm paradigm shifts, in particular, but paradigms in which. Um, we have a way of looking at the world. We all have our own paradigm, and that's what helps us, whether consciously or unconsciously, kind of go through through life. And then he went on to just talk about how the Scripture presents a story. There's a story that goes through, and once we grasp that story, that's really when we find out what the accurate, the real story, the real paradigm is. Well, that's what the Apostle John is doing in Revelation, particularly in the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. He's trying to, he's opening our eyes to seeing, to see the real battle. You think there's battles going on here in the, uh, in the world that you see? Here's the real war that is taking place and has been taking place throughout history and leading up to the future. Here are the armies that are at war over the church of Christ, and over our very souls. Now, the outline of Revelation that we've been following runs like this. Chapters 1 through 3 present, there's the introduction, you know, Christ has come in in all of his glory, and he's brought messages for the churches. And we see that in chapters 1 through 3. Then in chapters 4 through 7, well, four and five are leading up to the, the scroll with the seven seals. We see the worship of heaven. And then from then on, the, the breaking of those seals. Okay. When they're broken by the Lamb, who alone is worthy to do that, all types of disasters are unleashed on the earth. But the overall message is that they are under the control of God. God is using them as judgment And yet he is restraining even this very judgment to give people time and opportunity to repent and also for the sake of his covenant people to protect them and to preserve them. Then chapters 8 through 11 depict the results of breaking that seventh seal. Break that seventh seal, then you have seven trumpets. And what comes out of that? are more scenes of judgment. We're now beginning a new section. It's going to take us through chapters 12 through 14. And this section unveils for us that real war that is taking place. It is the battle for supremacy over God's creation and specifically over us. It is a conflict that began with our very creation. The first battle was waged in Eden, and the, that resulted in the fall. It's depicted in, in Genesis 3.15. God is speaking to the, to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Our opening verses here in chapter 12 are going to portray for us very clearly that enmity. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading verses 1 through 6. 
And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was called up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God and where she is to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days. The woman, well, the woman could be a number of things. They're all the same. The woman is Eve, whose offspring will be at enmity with the serpent, with this dragon. She is Mother Israel, or or Mother Jerusalem, who through all the generations of of labor gives birth eventually to the Lord's anointed, spoken of in Psalm 2, who that begotten of the Lord who bears the rod of iron. She's also the Mother Church, for true Israel is the church. The true church is that continuing covenant community of God. The dragon seeks to devour this child. He is the, this child is the dragon's great enemy, the promised one, destined to crush the dragon's head. He has tried again and again to destroy this child's seed line throughout history of Israel. And now he's desperate. Desperate to devour him before the child fulfills his calling. And that calling is to take the government of God's kingdom upon his shoulders that we read of in Isaiah. And to rule on the throne of David forever. But the dragon fails. For the child completes his mission on the cross. And after the resurrection, he ascends, he is taken up into heaven, where he is at God's right hand. And we have seen this child who is the lamb who was slain. We saw him back in chapter 5, there in the throne room, being worshipped. The church, the woman, however, must remain upon this wilderness earth. So, what we've seen, first of all, in verses 1 through 6, is the dragon's intent to destroy that child. That's his great enemy, and he fails. Now we'll look at, in verses 7 through 17, the dragon's wrath. Look at me, beginning in verse 7. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, 
and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, in you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had been given birth to the, to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now here again we have a scene of the, of the dragon being depicted of his defeat. And I want you to note a number of particulars here. First of all, the, the dragon is clearly identified in verse 9. He is the devil. He is Satan. And he is defeated. He's cast down from heaven. Unfortunately for us, he's cast down to earth. And it is here on earth that he still vents his rage. So he attacks the woman and the rest of her offspring. He attacks the church and her people. But though his attack is relentless, and though at times it seems like he's, he's going to sweep her away, she is always saved, always protected. Whether she is carried on the, the wings of an eagle, in the same way that God expressed the way that he had saved and delivered Israel out of Egypt, or by opening the earth to swallow the dragon's flood, God will save the church. That's the message that's being presented to us in 12. There's a dragon. He is our enemy. But he is a defeated dragon. He is filled with wrath. And he will vent his wrath against the church. But we will be protected. Chapter 13 takes us now to the to the works of Satan, of how he attacks the church, how he attacks God's people. Look with me in verses 1 through 10. We will read about the first beast. So, we left chapter 12. Satan is there on the seashore, right? 
And now what he is doing is he's calling up his two champions, his two beasts. And the first one is the beast from the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon. For he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, Let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, where the sword must he, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now, how do we understand the beast? Well, evidently he's powerful. Powerful so much, he is able to, to rule the world. And you, you see him being put in, in, in contrary ways with the, with the lamb. It was the lamb who has saved those from every tribe and every nation, every tongue. And now this beast comes to rule over those people. He is blasphemous. He's directly challenging God. He indeed is actually even imitating God, pretending to be a God. And by this power, because of his blasphemy, he attacks directly the church. And he even seems to conquer the church. That is, he's able to successfully persecute the church, to turn the world against the church, as the world now worships the beast. Even so, those whose names have been written before the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, they remain faithful. Their rights, maybe even their lives, might be conquered, but not their faith. Then rises the second beast, verses 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, 
whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. And his number is 666. And the second beast helps us actually to understand a little bit more about the first beast. Why this beast, who, with all of its power and so on, can still be kind of worshipped in, in adorations because of the methods of the second beast. He is the counterfeit lamb. And he carries out the dragon's battle, not by, not by fighting with power, not by direct attack, but with deception. It performs counterfeit miracles. It leads people astray to to worship, again, that first beast. It furthermore presents the system of markings, of sealing the beast worshipers, so that the economic sanctions can be forced upon those who remain faithful to the true lamb. Only those with that mark can buy and can sell. Now, however one may wish to to specifically apply 666, People have looked at different ways to identify that individual. One thing we can know for sure, the number never could have been 777. Never could have been 888. Because those numbers represent completion, purity, perfection. This piece, however grandiose he may seem, cannot get to that. He is a counterfeit God. So his mark is itself a counterfeit. And so the battle of Satan against the church began. And it continues to the present day. And no doubt, no doubt the, those who are, are hearing this message being read in their churches there in the ancient church, those seven churches and others, They're applying that message to Rome and to the emperors who demanded not only obedience, they demanded worship. But then history would go on. And these verses would also be applied in successive generations until it continues on. It'd be applied in different parts of the world depending what is taking place there, to regimes that are openly warring against the church, to cultures that compete with the church and try to deceive the church's people 
through their religions or with their atheism, with their worldly values. Satan may have lost the war, but as did Hitler after D-Day, he battles on and he strives to do as much damage as he can against God's people. This is the paradigm. This is the story that John is presenting to us. And so in the midst of describing the works of these bees, there is this clarion call to God's people. It's back there in verse 10 of chapter 13, the last line. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. What do we do in the face of such dire prophecy and hearing about these beasts? We endure. We keep the faith. This was a message to each of the seven churches back when we were reading through them in, in chapters 2 and 3. Each church was a little bit different, had their different problems and so on. But each were commended for those who would overcome, those who would conquer And what John was speaking of, or what the Lord Jesus was speaking of then, is of remaining faithful. The one who is able to to withstand the attacks from the outside. The one who is not led astray by deception. The one who keeps the course, whatever the persecution might be. This is the message to the churches for Revelation. Whatever comes, and every type of persecution, every type of deception will come. Whatever comes, remain faithful to your Lord, to your Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can remain faithful, because he remains faithful to you. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life where it was recorded before the foundation of the world, it cannot be erased. You have been sealed with the true seal of the true God. But above all, know this, that however mighty that bad dragon might be seem and and those beasts who want to claim authority for themselves and power, Remember what chapter 12, verse 10 says. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. We're back to chapter 11, verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus Christ sits upon the throne. He sat upon the throne when he ascended on high. He sat upon the throne over Rome and over all the kingdoms of the world. He sits upon the throne now. This is what I like about the particular understanding of Revelation that we've been presenting. This book reveals the true cosmic conflict. Dennis Johnson spoke of, that is being carried out through the ages. 
It takes us from the beginning of the world to the birth of Christ and on through the ages until he will return. So we're not mere historians. We're not merely reading about what what took place back then, nor are we futurists, kind of speculating about how these things are going to be fulfilled, hoping each generation, trying to interpret the signs to fit with right now. We are in the midst of the battle now with the beast. And we are being given the same message given to those folks back then. The same call of endurance and faith. And when you think about this, and when when you start to understand this, other things in the New Testament, in the epistles, when they're giving us admonitions, begin to make sense. Let me, let me read one example to you from Ephesians. It's in chapter 6. It's a well-known passage, verses 10 through 13. Paul's writing, and he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to what? To stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the battle that's taking place. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to do what? To stand firm. You know, we hear so much about how important it is. Identify correctly the enemy. Can't battle the enemy if you don't know who the enemy is. The enemy is Satan. The great dragon and his beast. We hear how important it is to, you know, to have a strategy. Well, the strategy is to stand firm, to endure, to remain faithful, because it is such traits as these. This is exactly what the enemy is trying to break. He doesn't care whether you're rich or poor or what's going on in your your lives and so on. He wants you to break. He's trying to break our spirits. Our spirit of trust and and confidence in our Lord. Our our spirit of devotion to our Savior. And so with one beast, he will lash out against uh, us with with earthly enemies. Who might even seek to destroy us. There might be, or use others who will try to outlaw us. The idea is to cause us to give way to fear. To be unable to endure and then with the, with the other beast, he'll try to deceive us or to tempt us so that we will compromise our faith, so that we will stray away. But there is one tactic that he can no longer take. The latter half of chapter 12, verse 10 explains this. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. One thing Satan can no longer do, he cannot go up there in heaven again and be our accuser. He cannot go before God as he did against Job. 
as he did another time against the priest Joshua and Zechariah. He cannot go before God and make an accusation that we should not be accepted by God because we're being, being guilty in our sins. No. Our accuser, who accused us night and day, he's been thrown down. God will not listen to him. He will not return his phone calls. Judgment was rendered at the cross. Our guilt was laid upon the lamb who was slain. He has borne our sins. He has taken away our guilt. And so we, when you understand that, then these, these glorious words, such as in Romans 8, I mean, it, it just becomes so meaningful and glorious. Let me read in, in Romans chapter 8. Beginning verse 31, you know these words. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Have Satan in your minds here. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, whatever these beasts want to try to do? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. The persecution is there. No. And all these things we are more than conquerors. Those who stay the course. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, to go back, use the language of Ephesians. No rulers, no authorities, no cosmic powers over this present darkness no spiritual forces of evil in the, in the heavenly places. No beast coming out of a sea or beast coming out of the earth can overcome us. Because they cannot overcome our King, our Lord, our Savior. And as all true believers know, the battle belongs to the Lord. And we are sent into the world to serve even to battle for God's kingdom, even then we do so. By what? By testifying to the battle won for us on the cross. A battle that is won for any who would turn to our champion. We testify through our words of faith. And we testify to the reality of that faith through our endurance. And so heed the call. 
call for endurance and the faith. We give you praise, our God, for the battle, the victory that has been won for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. For that victory that is assured for us, that whatever takes place in our lives, whatever takes place in this world, you are the sovereign king. You are the one who is overall and all things are working towards your ends, for your glory, for your good purposes that are always good for your church and for your people. May we, may we endure and may we keep the faith. In Christ's name, amen.